Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. So let's get started. It is my pleasure to introduce all of you to our guest today, Joel Beasley. He's the founder of Modern CGO, one of the best uh, tech-centric podcasts out there and also the founder of a company called LeaderBits. So welcome, Joel. We're thrilled to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And uh, it's so cool. Like, you know, I remember we, we chatted not too long ago on your podcast, and you've had some absolutely fascinating guests across the spectrum, people of the stature of the CTOs of Microsoft and even Sir Tim Berners-Lee, and once in a while, some minor attendees like the CTO of Hill Street. And I was like... <laughs> It was such a blast chatting with you about uh, just kind of like, you know, uh, the journey that uh, that we took uh, here at Yield Street on the tech side and building the company. But I want to kind of just given the the fascinating array of people that you talk to on a regular basis, multiple times a week, I just thought we would spend today's uh, time just chatting about some of the more interesting and fascinating people you've talked to and the technological advances that that they've shared with you and kind of like see if there are some interesting connections or intersections to be drawn from those tech spaces or areas into fintech, which is an area that's obviously very close to our heart here at Yield Street and for you as well, given your background. So uh, I thought we'd just kind of chat about some of the cool cool people you've talked about and cool technologies you've discovered. How's that sound? That sounds awesome. Do you want me to give you like the background of how we even started the podcast? That would be great. So that's uh, that would be uh, fascinating for everyone here to, to hear about your journey to where you are today. Yes. Yeah, so I got into technology super young because my dad was in the Air Force. And he learned all his technology skills there. So big fan of the public service. And awesome. uh, when I was around eight, he would uh, take me to different jobs that he had after he got out of the Air Force. So he would go, you know, put computer systems in hotels or do all these different things, uh, all these nights and weekends stuff. And I had a bunch of siblings. So my mom wanted to have one less to take care of after school. <laughs> so she would send me off with my dad to do some work. That resulted in me, you know, being in a lot of different offices, empty office buildings. And uh, my dad would give me these small little tech projects to keep me busy so he could get his work done. Now, as a parent, I completely understand that. But uh, <laughs> going forward, so that was really young. That was around age 8 to 10. At age 12, uh, I got hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair what? for a year. Yeah. Yeah, I don't get the t when you come on my podcast, I like make it all about you. So I don't try to share too much of the story. Okay, now we're going to spend some time on this because this, this, yeah. uh, obviously not the glory, you know, but like, I'd love to hear more about that. 
Yeah, man. I just, I, girl was texting and she hit me with her SUV going about 40 miles an hour and, uh, downsides of technology, right? <laughs> yeah. But the, the silver lining here, right. To bring it back around is that, uh, I got to spend all that time outside of school learning how to make money. So I'd gotten the entry programming, you know, from my father, but then coming out of school, I had a bunch of free time during the day. There's only so many video games you can play. So I found that I could freelance online and people didn't care that I was a 12 year old kid sitting at home, you know, with a broken leg. And uh, so I started making some good money, got a PayPal account because I wasn't old enough to have a bank account. So started generating revenue and then did that mostly through high school. And then at 18, I built some real estate software. Wow. And uh, my mom was a real estate agent. So I'd hang out there uh, at her real estate office and uh, started solving problems for people. You know, they were complaining and they're like, we need this or that. And I was like, yeah, I could probably write some code for that. That turned into a suite of tools, which eventually got turned into a company and sold off, grew it to about 30 developers, met some people during that process, some you know, attorneys and some business people uh, to help me complete that exit. And what I did was uh, I just built software for those few handful of relationships I had made during that exit. And I did that for about 10 years. And then I was having my first kid. And I said, do I want to do this for another 20 years? Do I want to just keep building apps over and over and over and building teams and then saying goodbye? Like I never stuck with anything. I just sold it off, you know? And I was looking around in the marketplace about what I wanted to do, having, you know, these kids coming on the way. And I said, uh, well, everyone out there seems to be doing really well because they have a lot of relationships, right? I was like, I've, I've seen some of yep. these people. I've looked at their code on GitHub. I'm better at engineering than them, but they're doing better than me financially. And they're doing all of these business motions that I don't know what's going on. So I need more relationships. And so I was on uh, Facebook and I saw this guy named Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. And he was talking about building relationships and uh, podcast being one of those ways. So i started a podcast and I was doing three episodes a day and I lost my voice. I'd talk to anyone who was willing to talk with me, <laughs> just started with That's some friends. And then uh, I remember being on a walk with my wife. And she said, uh, Hey, like you have to be able to talk to me when you get home from work. Like we have to have a relationship. And she's like, I'm here with the kid all day. It's a one-year-old kid. I can't talk to it. I need a, another human to talk to. So we cut it back from three a day to, you know, about two a day. And, uh, so the podcast grew several months after that. You know, I think we got a call. It was either, I can't remember. It was either CTO of uh, Microsoft or the CTO of T-Mobile, like had listened to the podcast and they wanted to come on. And I was like, what? Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I was like blown away. I was so excited. Yeah, dude. Yes. Very <laughs> nervous. Very nervous. And uh, so we did a couple of those, but then Verizon heard T-Mobile came on and then like we booked up like within, within that one event, I'd say within 90 days, we booked up six months in advance. Right. And uh, so it just kind of exploded. The listeners went through the roof. Um, it's been four years now since then, and it's the number one leadership technology podcast in the world. And you know, I'd say one of the coolest interviews we had recently was um, Tim Berners-Lee, creator of the World Wide Web. Okay, so I'm going to jump right into that because that is just like you know we're literally talking about one of the few giants on whose shoulders we all stand today. Anything we do in, in this modern connected world, would, we wouldn't be able to do if we hadn't done what he did back in 1989. So. Just tell me about that talk. I'm just so fascinated. Like, what was what was it like to talk to this legend? Well, I haven't been nervous in a while because we have like a lot of great people on, but I was definitely nervous to talk to him. He's brilliant though, right? And 
I find that these great people, they're so kind and they're so experienced and they get to talk to so many people. So they just make you feel comfortable and sort of lead the way. So he, conversationally, he was fantastic. He was there. Every, everyone has you know, a reason why they do press, right? And his reason was they're making this, some people call it like a second internet. Mm -hmm. After learning about it more, it looks like a second, like a different layer on the internet, but it's the concept of building this solid world. So they're building this platform or they have it, it exists. It's called solid yep. and your data exists within this pod. And I actually thought it was good for this conversation because the way he's explained it to me and the way I've been trying to explain it to other people, like my hairdresser or my friends that aren't in tech, uh, is with a banking analogy. So right now, like if you have a, you know, you got, everyone has a banking application, right? And your data exists on their servers, right? It's at that bank's servers. And you don't have a, like a copy of that data in its raw form. You only have whatever they'll let you export and you have to log into it constantly. Yep. Well, this new concept of these pods, essentially I would have this pod of, of my, my banking data and it would be constantly in sync with the source of it, right? Mm -hmm. And I would be able to do whatever I want with this data. So I, like traditionally, if I wanted a third-party application, it would have to be improved by, let's say, you know, some bank name, right? Some bank, I don't want to yep. say which, like a specific bank, but let's sure. call, call it like a bank. And then they would have to approve this third-party application. They would do this integration. And then finally, me as the consumer would be able to use that, but now it would be in this pod, right? Mm -hmm. And then I can do whatever I want. I can bring a third-party app into that pod. I can control read-write access to it. If I were to ever leave that financial institution, I could take that pod and cut it off so that they can no longer, so that the financial institution can no longer read or write to it. And I just have a snapshot of that data. So it's actually really fascinating. And it's definitely not easy to understand at first go. It took me literally having Tim on to explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, I'm trying. It, it's amazing because it, it touches upon a element of today's connected and digital world and a regulatory world, in fact, and the idea that your data is yours and it's your choice about who to share it with for how long and how much of it. And this is a portable concept, obviously has a direct application in banking and, and financial data, but the same, it, it goes out to your medical data, your, your electronic health records and stuff. And um, so I think of these, uh, so I was wondering if he talked about any use cases that Solid and these pods have been deployed. For instance, if you're trying to get a rent an apartment and you need a credit report, it's, you're not going through some central agency. You actually have all of your data and then your, your balance sheet lives in your own pod and you're, you're choosing to share it with your potential landlord for a limited amount of time. So it's got such huge long-term uh, implications of that kind of technology. Did he have any kind of thoughts on like the, the adoption of the technology that he's building and how bearish was he about it? Yeah, we talked a little bit about how do you get these concepts into market, right? Because you would need the willingness of the healthcare data provider to dump their information into pods or to support mm -hmm. that sort of format, right? That pod concept or whatever institution, the banking, they would need to do this. So we were talking a little bit about it. We think that the way it's going to happen is just small 
increments, right? Some companies will do it because it's cool because they believe in data and that you should own your data. So some of these early companies will start doing it. I believe that's who they're working with now. That's the current market approach is some of these companies want to make this data available because they think it's the right thing to do ethically. And then eventually consumer demand will come to the point where uh, one bank will do it, right? Mm -hmm. Or one data health provider will do it. And then everyone's going to be building applications on top of those pods because they can. And then that's going to force the larger companies to adopt it. It's just a privacy centric, privacy first version of the TCP IP stack. How cool is that? Like it's, it's just I'm like, I, I caught a, a fragment of that and I, I, I just would love to hear that again on your show. One of the other uh, technology areas that obviously is like all over and a lot of it is hype and we've talked about it in some of our shows and I'm sure you have as well as blockchain. I know you recently talked to uh, uh, one of the co-founders of Stellar. Any interesting insights there that you'd like to share? Yeah, so I've gotten to talk to a couple of these blockchain creators. Yeah, so I got to talk to David, co-founder of Stellar, and then I got to talk to the, the founder of um, one of the founding engineers of Ripple as well. And here's the, I think one of the interesting takeaways from both of them was that they're really, really smart. <laughs> like <laughs> the one, yeah. the one guy, David, is uh, like a like a Harvard graduate, currently a professor at Stanford with another sub degree from MIT. Right? They're they're incredibly brilliant people. He was trying to explain, I said, explain this concept to me like I'm a three-year-old. And he started out with like some mathematical formula. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know what three-year-olds you're talking to, but I need you to dumb it down. <laughs> I know, right? Like, but so they're, they're really smart is what I've noticed. And it's not just those two. I've talked to a number of other crypto people as well. These, these sort of creators of these cryptocurrencies, and they seem to have a real strong sense of like what is right. So it made me, I guess the takeaway from talking to all of them was that I feel pretty comfortable that these are the type of people that are making these systems mm -hmm. because these are the type of people that just obsess over them being accurate and correct. And that's, you know, if you're building a team, you know, you build teams all day, right? If you're building a team, you want that personality when when you're building like a medical device or a financial device you want really 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 bright people who care a lot about it being right for sure and like you know considering the genesis of the not the cryptocurrency part of it because that's one of the applications but the underlying technology was effectively a an attempt to uh, the closest attempt to solve one of the long-standing problems in computer science the byzantine generals problem uh, which people have tried to solve in many different ways so it's not an easily accessible problem to even wrap your head around, rather, let alone solve it. So it kind of almost stands to reason that, you know, these are super brilliant people who are, who are, who are tackling this. So kind of like the really interesting thing I would like, I'd love to hear thoughts on it. Like there are applications of this technology in many different spaces, right? And some of them are some really interesting white papers that I've read like Filecoin. But what do you like? So Ripple obviously is one of the key players in like the FinTech space itself. What are some of the things that you've thought about maybe that this raw piece of technology can be brought to bear on some actual existing problems that we're trying to solve in FinTech? Would you just, just off the top of your head, what would you, uh, what do you think you would deploy this for? I don't know, really. Maybe like the blockchain technology in general seems to be really useful for like remittances. So, mm -hmm. from, you know, I'm, 
I had a financial software company and we've primarily did portfolio allocation and then tax strategies for withdrawing money over the course of your retirement. So that's, that's sort of my example over there, but from what I've got, so I'm not an expert in international multi-government remittance concepts, but I have talked to a few people about it. And uh, I think that it's a little, it's a little scary because it's like they remove the need for the, the way it was explained to me is when you want to send money from like one country to another country, it does mm-hmm. this like, like several of these hops through these different technologies. And every time it's hopping through these different technologies, they're, they're taking fees and exchange rates are changing and things yeah. like that. But with these new cryptocurrencies, it's like a single hop and it, it's everything's more predictable and the money flows faster. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that because that's kind of like our point of view here at Yield Street as well is the one of the biggest roles this can play is in that level of disintermediation for a lot of these like complex transactions, especially in the asset management world, because exactly like you said, there's so many parties and third parties and counterparties. Uh, they're all like picking, like nibbling at that pie in terms of fees, and we can just eliminate a whole bunch of them, if not all of them, which is which is really kind of cool. That's why I like what you guys are doing, democratizing investments. Man, I, when I heard what you guys were doing and that you were coming on the podcast, I was so pumped up because I, have, I had heard about you before. So a lot of the guests I have, like I'm learning about them as they come on, but I had, I had heard about Yield Street before and I loved what you guys were doing. And it actually, the thing that even made me a bigger fan of you was you had gone farther on your mission than when I initially found out about you. I think the initial minimum investment was like much higher when I first found out about you. And by the time you came on the show, it was like, it was true that you guys are in this mission to democratize investments. I don't know if that's your official mission, but that's what I took from it. It absolutely is. And it continues to be that. And hopefully you've uh, actually now gotten on the platform as well as an investor. If not, you have some offerings open. Yeah. Um, And my producer went and made an account. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we should definitely talk offline on how your experience was in that whole process. But, but I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you came on board. Welcome. Yeah. And Can I say something else about the please. governments? I think it's. I think there's a theme emerging here. So between Stellar and Solid, so Tim Berners Lee and mm-hmm. David at Stellar, both of them are making progress with governments. I don't think I said that before, but uh, Tim Berners Lee, one of the big customers that they have right now, is mm-hmm. governments because the government has so much data. Right. And it exists in so many separate silos across so many different APIs from so many different vendors, creating a standardized way to dump this data and give it to a person mm-hmm. is something that governments are interested in. I think they're working with Belgium. And then the way I actually found out about Stellar was Ukraine chose them as the, the, the company to help them with the Ukrainian uh, digital currency rollout. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's actually, this is very comforting, actually, to see that. And governments are taking interest in this because like ultimately a lot of these new technologies and and that's it's one of the things that i'm sure you've encountered as well both in your talks and your own work is like there are limits that you can take technology to but there are limits set in place by regulatory concerns that that often almost always precede what's possible on the technology side and sort of actually having some kind of legislative influence on on the policy that actually makes some of these technologies realize their full potential, it's an, it, it won't happen. And we see this a lot, especially in healthcare in the United States, where, you know, the, and this kind of goes back to the data ownership uh, that we talked about earlier. It's like people, companies don't, are not incented to let go of that data, right? You know, because it's treasure. 
So there is that fundamental conflict of interest, which can only be resolved through legislative um, you know, interception. So it's that's great. I'm going to keep coming back to Sir Berners-Lee because he's just a, such a fascinating <laughs> person. But does he have a, are they actually playing an active role in like legislative affairs? And, and are they influencing legislation around the world and different governments, aside from the ones that actively approach them? Because that would be amazing. I have no idea. We didn't get there in the conversation. I was just really focused on, this is really great technology. And whenever I see something really great, I feel like I elected myself unofficially (laughs) to make sure there's a business model behind it that'll ensure that this thing sees the light of day. So you get projects like Neuralink with Elon Musk, you know, we want the Mm -hmm. app store in our brain. Like that'd be so cool. We want these abilities, but until you're solving things like Parkinson's or degenerative type diseases with very basic versions of it, that carry a business model that allow this technology to flourish over the next decade or two to achieve that result. Like yeah. if you don't have that, then the technology, then the future is not going to get there. That's I couldn't agree more. It's actually a good segue into some of the other uh, uh, guests that I'm kind of very curious to hear about, which is less in the software space, but more in the hardware uh, space of things. And, um, we can leave the fintech mapping a little bit aside for now, but I'm just kind of curious about like, what are some of, like, I think you mentioned you talked to someone in like the chip or microprocessor uh, world who's kind of like building some truly revolutionary chip. I'd love oh, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought you were going to want to talk about the elevator guy. <laughs> but, On that too, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, because we've got, there's a lot of cool things happening in hardware. We'll get to the chip in a second, but because I, I had a kind of a question for you about this guy I talked to. So, the company was Software AG. The guy I talked to is a CTO. His name is Burned. Super cool guy. But he was telling me this, this story that, so they're, they're like an elevator manufacturer, mm-hmm. right? But then they're, they're an older company and they've been around for a while. But what they've done is they've redefined and transformed themselves into a transportation company, which is kind of like a funny thought, right? They, they technically are transporting people, but you don't think of an elevator company as a transportation company. But when you have all the, right, right. But when you have all the elevators connected, you know, and, and you can get data from them and make the experience and you start thinking about the experience within the elevator. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are some pretty gnarly elevators out there. (laughs) Elevators that have poor user experiences. Man, I I live in New York city. There are some, you know, scary floor transitions that we encounter in some of the older pre-war buildings here. So Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely aware of that. But, but that's such an, frankly, crazy concept. Like, you know, uh, like an elevator waiting for you rather than you waiting for an elevator. Yeah. So IoT as a concept is new and fascinating, but there is this scary side to it, right? Because here's the thing, when you, when you come up with network, you know, any kind of networks, technology, hardware, software, the ever-present danger of being hacked is, is going to be like multiple. It's the reason Battlestar Galactica survived the Cylon attack. You know, they were completely air-gapped, right? So I was curious to, like, you know, uh, when, you, when you chatted with Burns, like, did you touch upon, like, the, the security or hacking aspects of, of technology like this? Um, not really. I mean, I hope my elevator doesn't get hacked. Uh, unless <laughs> if it's, like, <laughs> for me to find love or something, right? Like, <laughs> I, I saw some cheesy movie over the weekend where, like, these two people wanted to get their bosses together. So they use the security team to like stop the elevator when they were both in there. Yeah. Um, obvious. Yeah. It's Backfired. Good, made sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what it got me thinking about was um, yield street because 
not to like keep bringing it back to you, but I, I think it's, I think it's fascinating. And I was curious, you know, everybody always sees you as something as what you've done over the past couple of years, because that's, you know, who you are to them. And like people look at me personally, or you, you personally, and they look at your growth and the person that they're seeing today is based off of the decisions you made years ago. So they don't even know what's going on. Like what I'm working on today is like what you will see in three years. Right. And so from a perspective of your, your brand, you know, you guys started as this democratizing investments, right. But I want to know, like, where is that going forward? What type of problems have you faced with people seeing you as an investment company over a technology company, or do they see you as both? I think that's a very good question. And I think it's a bit of both. The fact that we are able to, because the underlying finance, the structured finance world that we live in is nothing new, right? Obviously it's, it's, it's existed in kind of the rarefied corridors of Wall Street for a long time now. And like the whole idea of democratization becomes a reality, it becomes a possibility through the deployment of technology that enables you. So obviously there's a lot more to that, like coming up with the scalable legal structures for the different kinds of offerings and different kinds of funds we, we create to, to open up these opportunities. But ultimately the distribution part of it is only made possible by technology. In fact, the very technology that was created by Sir Berners-Lee. So, so I, I, I think in a way, the set of people that, that come in and find it more or less effortless to invest in something. And underneath there's this big machinery at work that's giving them a portion of ownership in something. Uh, and the fact that we are able to deliver it to them without exposing them to the underlying complexities of what goes on to make that possible is the technological foundation for it. So the people who, I, I actually like the people, the audience that don't see that technology part because if if they're seeing this as just another experience not dissimilar to buying something on Amazon or you know if it's that simple then we've done our job we always I always kind of like considered myself or like the technology wing of a finance or some other vertical domain company as the as the people behind the scenes who make things possible and who who abstract out a lot of the complexity and make it super simple, super and even enjoyable for, for users to go through whatever service it is that you're offering. So yeah, I mean, I think the perception is a fintech company, but I think it's the same way that say uh, an online an e-commerce store is perceived as a tech company. You know, it's like, they know it's technology that's making it possible. You don't really think about it in that in, uh, or look at it through that lens. And in a way that's kind of like a victory for me because we did our job by making it so simple, you know, that kind of like answers a question. Yeah. You want to talk about that chip guy now? Yes, please. That's just like, whoa, you know, I just saw the factor, the ratio and they're like, okay, this is something next level. I know. Right. I was talking to the PR team. I'm like, what can I share? Cause when you get to talk with all these companies, the uh, stuff that gets cut is so much, so interesting. It's like, I wish I could just make an episode of like, here's everything that got cut, but you can't. <laughs> Yeah. So, so stay within the bounds, obviously, but like, I'd love to hear, I'm sure our audience would love to hear as well. Yeah. So the cool company is called Grok, G-R-O-Q. So the CEO is Jonathan and he's an example of like similar to the cryptocurrency guys. He's just next level brilliant. So mm -hmm. I liken it to, um, one time I come into my living room and my family is watching this nature documentary, I think on Netflix, right? And they've got these like big gorilla, it's like a gorilla family, right? And they're in the, the forest and they're, the, the parent gorillas are teaching the young gorillas how to eat, like how to get their food. And they have to take a, 
pick up a like a rock or something and then place a nut on the rock and like you know break it and open it to get their food out of the nut they're, they're teaching them how to eat and get their food and i feel like that sometimes when i'm talking to these brilliant people i feel like they're sitting there explaining to me these higher order concepts that exist in our universe and me trying to understand that visual of the monkey cracking the nut like comes into my head and so sometimes it's hard but man they're brilliant people <laughs> and i asked him too this is funny part too because this is um we edited this out, but it was because I wanted to edit out. <laughs> so I was asking him, he gave me this like intelligence test, which I did not perform well on. Please <laughs> don't give me that, please. No, I know we are not doing that. We learned, we're like, no longer am I going to ask guests for their interview test to run them live with me. But I asked him, I was like, is this something I could improve at? And he's like, well, <laughs> he's like, you know, some people are LeBron James and other people you know, they're just like five foot five, so they can get better, but they're never going to be LeBron James. <laughs> I'm oh, like, thank you. Thank you for being <laughs> kind. <laughs> so, um, all right. So back to what he's doing, they invented these chips, right? I'm not sure of the ratio, but it was something along the lines of like one of their chips can handle more compute specifically for AI applications mm -hmm. than a truckload of the most advanced chips you can buy on the market today, minus theirs. And they had raised ridiculous amount of money. I think he had previously sold his company to you know one of the big top five companies. It was like a Facebook or something, mm -hmm. uh, or he was an, someone at Google. It was one of the big companies. He had done a cool project and uh, had his business acquired before he did this. And he was a super brilliant guy, but it was so interesting how open he was to like all the different ideas, like, because they're making these advanced processing chips. I was like, Hey, because they're chips, like when you send them in the bag, those, those like cellophane type bags, they should be like branded like chips. He's like, yeah, we could do a partnership with Doritos and like, yeah, cool ranch processors. So he was a really cool guy. Like, like I said, these smart people are super kind to us underlings, but, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, man, it was just blowing my mind that one, one chip, it could be more powerful than the best commercial processor than a, than a truckload of the best commercial processors you could buy today. Yeah, you know how you, some things are just impossible to kind of comprehend in your head, like the net worth of Jeff Bezos or the cosmic distances that we are talking about. This is one of those things. But I was thinking about it when we were talking about that uh, a little bit uh, a little while ago. One of the very justified criticisms of of crypto and especially mining is is the is the amount of compute and the amount of energy that is consumed by by the mining process itself and i was just thinking like okay well what are what is the range of things like, like recently of course you must have read like tesla shedding its bitcoin holdings or stopping use of bitcoin because of that so obviously one solution is energy efficient or alternative sources of energy to do the mining but this is I'm just literally thinking aloud here, but something like this could actually solve that problem from a different angle as well. Like, you know, you're basically using that this massive compute to do more efficient mining and thereby hopefully reducing the energy or carbon footprint of the mining process itself. Exactly. So efficiencies there. I also saw a cool report come out a few days after must, you know, tanked the coin um but it was or, or that can yep. basically he just brought a concern into light and everybody realized yeah. it wasn't him it's not because musk said it it's because he drew the line between energy efficiency and bitcoin and that line hadn't been drawn really heavily before that's your next guess man 
that's who you need to get on your show. We could do it. We were working on it and uh, then COVID happened. And so, you know, now that he's in Texas, it would probably be a lot easier. It was really hard. We were looking at schedules and yeah. the guy flies a jet to work and he lives in California at the time and I'm in Florida, uh, but we can, we can figure it out. Hey, you could use one of the tunnels that he's building. Although that one's in California, I think. Like, that's so I wanted cool. it to be in person. That's why. Like, I didn't want to do a remote one. Yeah, like, yeah. If I'm going to do a, a one with Elon Musk, I want to be in person. Well, you might just kind of like plant something that the Neuralink chip in your head without you even realizing it. I'm hoping that I'm going to go back to Jonathan at Grok and be like, what up? I'm LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. What else, man? Like, what about security? I mean, we have a little bit more time. So I mean, we kind of touched upon, well, we'll see how far, like there's, a, there are so many fascinating guests, so we probably won't get to all of them. That's just material for you for our next show. But two areas, pick whichever one you feel would be more interesting to chat about machine learning and AI or security, both of which have very interesting applications in our world in FinTech as well. So any guests that spring to mind? So security wise, some cool people I've talked to. I've got to talk to the guy who was um, in the Pentagon running cybersecurity on 9-11. His name was Tony. He's at TiVo cool. Networks. And it was really, really fascinating sort of what he could share about what the experience yeah. was like, you know, going through that. But what they do and they focus on now and what I'm seeing mo a lot of these security companies do mm -hmm. is they focus on like privilege escalation. Like so when attackers get in, what do yeah. they look like? And then watch how they're escalating across the network. And then also setting up, I mean, I would use the word honeypots, but I think they use the word decoys. So they'll set yeah. up these like trap systems. But so you've got that. And then another cool guy I got to talk to was uh, John, who's the founder of Blackpoint. And he was an offensive hacker for the NSA. And that was an interesting interview because I was trying to get him to explain to me like what it was like being on an offensive hacking team for the US government. And I couldn't get him to like talk about it at all. <laughs> So like I, later in the conversation, like I left the topic and then later in the conversation, I came back and I was like, all right. So if I was watching a movie <laughs> and I tried to give them like create this like far fetched hypothetical situation and there is some subsects. If you listen to that episode, I, I think yeah. everybody could extract their own thoughts from it. But I mean, he was good about being like tight lipped and you know, he's very polite and everything, but he did give an amazing explanation of what it's like to be in the room on a defensive drill because you know we hear attackers getting in and we build these images in our head and we've got the movies but what does it actually look like at mm -hmm. one of these businesses when you've got like four or five engineers in a room and they're actually experiencing an attack so i thought that those there's a lot that goes into it man they take this stuff super seriously i always wonder like you know if you ask these people like if you have like you mentioned in movies we see see this all the time and they string together a bunch of tech sounding words and like you know <laughs> and a virtual machine and like you know i'm gonna like boot right into the eprom or whatever like you just like i just wonder about these guys watching these movies like they have no idea what they're talking about it's just a bunch of words but once in a while you come in come across like uh you know a show like mr robot and they actually nail it you know it's all real they're, they're not they're not making shit up you know it's just kind of cool that's one of my one of my dream jobs like when i'm retired which probably won't happen but when i'm older when i'm in like my 60s i will volunteer yeah. for like people that are making movies and stuff to help them make it more accurate like neil degrasse tyson does with science movies yeah i think that should be a full-time job really it would make movies so much more compelling seriously that would be these tech geek movies 
Machine learning, I know you talked to uh, recently the co-founder or CTO of uh, Cobalt Metals. Yes. Yeah. So Josh, and then after I have to talk about Josh, we just have to touch on Shri because I mean, oh, yeah. CTO of PayPal and what he says the future of payments are, I think that's important for the- Let's start with that actually, because that's- want to start with that? Yeah. Let's start with the PayPal. Okay. <laughs> so Shri is like one of the most brilliant leaders I've ever met. Like every part about him is polished and real and authentic. And he's just super, super cool guy. But I was trying to figure out like, what's, what's the future and he said this phrase that I'd never heard before called ambient payments is like the future of payments. And I was like, well, what do you mean? Ambient he said, okay, so you, you live in New York, you've used Uber, right? When's yep. the last time you paid your Uber bill? When do you pay the driver? Probably as soon as I exit the car. Yeah. You don't actually pay the driver. It just ambiently happens, right? It knows the ride's over and the transaction's performed. You're not approving the uh, transaction. You don't click a pay button. Like it just happens. Happens, yeah. Yeah. So he says the future, more things will become like ambient payments. And I can see that too, right? Because like I'm at the grocery store and right now, actually, it's funny because like I, you know, I host the Modern CTO podcast. People expect me to be like up on technology. But about three weeks ago, I left my wallet at home and I needed to grab lunch from the grocery store. And so I, I had to go in. I asked the grocery store, I'm like, hey, do you guys use this Apple Pay? Because I'd set it up, yeah. but I'd never used it before. And they're like, yeah. And so now I, I, I like never take my wallet out of my pocket anymore at the grocery store. I just use the Apple Pay. It's fantastic. Yeah. But that's like one step away from ambient, right? Because in the future, it'll know all the items that I have in my cart. And then it'll know who I am. And then it'll just charge me as I walk out. So that's kind of like the concept behind Amazon Go, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. there. They're fully ambient. They have no staff. Yeah, this fully ambient. Yeah, and it's literally ambient. It's like a million cameras in there, which is. So I was like thinking, like, huh? I mean, that is completely universally applicable because the technology exists. It's just it's one of those things where you know, even like you know, I I, I can see some very interesting use cases for that in our world in Yield Street with things like you know, auto invest, where you know, it just like it just happens. You don't have to worry about it. That's, yeah, that's here's so my cool. profile. Here's my risk tolerance. Hmm. Like here's, here's what I'm into. Now just go invest for me. And that's a big part of our mission. In fact, you know, to, to kind of like have it be as self-driving and as passive as possible. So, because we, there's so many things to deal with, right? You know, you're dealing with the, you know, your day-to-day -day life, your kids, your, your work. And if there's any aspect of your life, and this is kind of like a good, we're coming up on time. So I'd like to kind of wrap up, although you probably have to save, uh, uh, Josh, for, for our next chat, but anytime technology simplifies life a little bit, and people kind of like think about it as like, it's making you lazier, but I don't quite see that. It's, I think it's, it's a matter of simplification. Like, you know, so your attention span is devoted to things that cannot be disintermediated with technology that needs your human attention, that needs your eyes, that needs your touch or whatever it is. Everything else, and this is kind of like folds right into the ambient payment idea, but it's like, it just happens. You don't have to worry about it. I think that's that's kind of like think about future of fintech, but it's really the future of tech in many ways, where you know just things happen automatically based on what someone or something knows about you. I want an ambient HR department. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That will be actually wow. Let's brainstorm that idea uh, next time and see what the, what that would look like. Uh, we are just about coming up on time, so any wrap up thoughts you want to share? Yeah, if you want to check out these conversations, the podcast is Modern CTO, M-O-D-E-R-N-C-T-O. Uh, you find it in any place that you listen to your podcast, Apple, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to podcasts.
and he does two of them every day. So there's a lot to choose from. So do. Do check it out. Do. Again, thank you so much, Joel, for being on the show. This was a blast. And be forewarned, we're going to have you back here again because there's a lot of stuff we haven't talked about yet that I want to get back to. And by then, you probably will have talked to Elon Musk, so there'll be a lot more to talk about as well. <laughs> Seriously, this was this was so much fun. Stay tuned kind of to some of our uh, follow-on episodes as well. We do a lot of interesting, te- both tech talks and finance talks. So now that you're on the platform, I think you'll find some interesting stuff there as well. And... I do want to uh, remind you, go check us out at yieldstreet.com. We have a bunch of open offerings right now. And again, if you're looking to raise some capital with us, just click the raise capital link in our footer or uh, email us at originations at yieldstreet and we'll be happy to help. Thanks everyone. Thanks again, Joel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.